Your sinful acts, Isaiah says, have alienated you from your God. Your sins have caused him to reject you, and he does not listen to your prayers. Your sin makes you unpresentable before God who is absolutely holy. See, most people think if I do more good than I do bad, that somehow I can get rid of the bad I've done, that God will accept me on that basis. But that's not how the new birth takes place. And you must be born again to enter God's kingdom. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are in a series of special messages that were delivered by Dr. Brogy, and today is part two of a three-part series on understanding the new birth. Through biblical exposition, Pastor Carl brings clarity and context to John 3.16 as he speaks about the correlation of ignorance and unbelief in regard to the truth. Let's join Pastor Carl as he continues in John chapter 3. God has spoken to everyone in some way through both the creation and the conscience. In the opening chapter in John 1 in the prologue, Jesus is described as the true light who enlightens every man. But as we'll see in a moment, the problem is that men love the darkness rather than the light. And so it's not an intellectual problem in the end. It is in the beginning. We're all born in ignorance. We just don't automatically know the gospel. We have to somewhere along the way hear it. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord, speaking of Jesus, will be saved. But how can you call upon him in whom you have not heard? And how will you hear without a preacher? And the preacher has to go and tell you this good news, the Scripture says. And the preacher there in Romans 10 is not just a professional like me, but all of us. We're all called preachers. We're all called priests. We all share a number of terms together as God's people. So it's unbelief that begets ignorance. And if a person remains in ignorance, it's typically rooted in his unbelief. And it's a principle that runs all the way through Scripture that a person can stay in ignorance because God refuses to give them any more revelation about himself because they will not respond to the revelation that he has already given them. So it is unbelief towards the truth that keeps a man in darkness. If I told you earthly things, verse 12, and you do not believe, how shall you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So while the new birth is from above, in one sense it's earthly, and that it takes place on this earth, and its effects can be seen on this earth. I was born again when I was 18 years old. It took place in a classroom. It had nothing to do with the school I was attending, but that was just the location where I believed on Christ and was born again. So Nicodemus, if you can't believe the simpler things that you should be expected to believe as a teacher of Israel, and if you can't experience right now a new birth that takes place on earth, then how can I give you more profound, complicated truths that are heavenly in nature? Some teacher you are, Nicodemus. And so Nicodemus needs to come to grips with where he really is. Nicodemus, if you don't understand this earthly miracle from above, 
you're not going to be able to really understand and perceive greater truth. Look at verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Why can Jesus speak about heaven with such authority? Because of what he says here. He descends from heaven. Now, I know you meet these people, and we'll talk about it a little bit in our series on heaven from the Revelation. They say, well, I died on the operating table, and I went to heaven, and, you know, God and I had this conversation. There are whole books written on it, and magazine articles written habitually in magazines like Charisma that has recently slandered a great man of God in our nation, John MacArthur. But you see, they put everything with experience above everything else. Just because you've experienced something doesn't make it legitimate. Everything that is spiritual is not spiritually true. And it may be that your heart and lungs stopped on an operating table and you, and you had a lack of, lack of oxygen to the brain and maybe you thought something in a dream, but you didn't die and go to heaven. The Scripture is clear. It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. James is very, very clear that death does not take place, he says, until the Spirit leaves the body. And when the Spirit leaves the body, it never comes back into that body. So it has nothing to do with the physiological signs on an operating table. Death happens when the Spirit leaves. And when the Spirit leaves, it either departs, absent from the body, present with the Lord, or absent from the body, present in Hades. But some people have had this experience, and they're convinced it's true. Again, it may be oxygen deprivation. Sometimes it's greed, and we'll speak of this recently of a book that was done. And then the guy came out and said, I was a big fraud and a fake, but I made millions of bucks. <laughs> on the backs of naive evangelicals who no longer know their Bibles. Or sometimes it's just downright deception. The devil is a deceiver. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. No one can speak with such authority except Jesus because he left heaven and took on our humanity. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're not celebrating next month Christ's birthday we're celebrating his earth day. The one with no beginning or end leaves the presence of the Father, and he takes on our humanity. And so you need to make sure that you've had this birth from above, that you have been born again. And so Jesus is going to relate the new birth to an illustration. He wants Nicodemus to get this. And so here's a man who's been ingrained in the Scriptures for probably decades. And so he can speak to him in one way that he cannot speak, say, to the woman at the well in the next chapter as it's recorded. But before I get to the illustration, let me ask you this question. On a scale of 0 to 100, how sure are you that you're born again? Did you mark out an answer there on the paper? I hope you did member and visitor alike. Now, just saying you're 100% sure you're born again doesn't make it true. 
Jesus speaks in the end of a great multitude of people who are absolutely convinced they are going to heaven. And he'll say to them, I never knew you, depart from me. And so the second question is equally important there in your note-taking outline. If you were to stand before God and God asked you, if being born again is necessary to enter my kingdom, tell me how to be born again. I mean, God won't ask you that question, but if he were to ask you that question, what would you say? Hold your answer. Put it out in the margin of your mind. Don't lose it. So illustrations are like windows that let light in. And so Jesus gives this illustration. Look at verse 14. He says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must, circle that word must, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in Him will have eternal life. Now, the illustration comes from the Torah, specifically the book of Numbers, the 21st chapter, a portion of Scripture that Nicodemus was well studied in. Let me read it to you. The uh, context is when the Israelites had left Egypt, they're out in the wilderness, and they begin to bellyache over the provisions that God had given them. And so they go to God's man, and they whine, and they complain. We're told, Numbers 21, beginning in verse 4, then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. And the people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For he says, there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food, or bread you could render it. And the Lord sent fiery serpents, poisonous snakes, among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede or pray with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded or prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard or a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. And Moses made a bronze serpent. He set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So God sent these poisonous snakes amongst the people. Remember, 600,000 men leave Egypt, excluding women and children. So there's some 2 million people that are out here in the wilderness. And they're being bitten with a bite of judgment and discipline. And they're beginning to drop like flies. Some are still sick. They haven't died yet. They're coming to Moses. Remember, this is at a time in human history when not everyone is a priest. The promise of the new covenant is every believer is a priest. Now, I may not have a collar around my neck, and you might not either, but if you know Jesus is your Savior, the Bible plainly says that every born-again, blood-bought child of God is a priest of God. You don't have to go through a Moses anymore. You can go directly to the Son who intercedes with the Father as the Spirit prompts you to pray. But this is a picture of the truth that we see in Scripture, and that these people are bitten with death, for the wages of sin is death. And so they crowd to Moses for mercy, for deliverance. And the remedy is God says, make a serpent out of bronze in the likeness that bit the people. 
And so he makes a serpent and he sets it on a pole. Why on the pole? Because God wants any Israelite to be able to see it. God is not willing that any should perish. And God doesn't want to hide his deliverance. He wants to offer it to people. And the same is true on this side of the cross. He sets it high on a pole so that anyone who looks can live. And so the symbol of healing in medicine today is out of a snake around a pole. You see it on the back of most ambulances. Some would say, well, that came from the goddess Asclepius. No, he got it from Moses centuries before. It's just like the flood story. There are over 250 flood stories in the world, but the original flood story comes from Scripture. And this original picture of healing comes from God Almighty and His Holy Scripture. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. You see, my friends, when you choose to sin against God, and we've all chosen to do that, Romans 5 says that when Adam sinned, all sinned, we've been bitten by a different serpent. We've been bitten by the devil, so to speak, and now we have a sin nature. In sin did my mother conceive me, King David will pen. And so because of that, we are fallen, we are sinful, we are blinded to the things of God. And if you want to see the things of God, understand them, and enter into God's kingdom, you have to have a cure for eternal death, and it is eternal life. But the analogy here is clear, and you need to know this analogy if you know Christ. Just as, even so, just as... The serpent was lifted high on a pole, even so the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, there is nothing the Israelis could do to redeem themselves. The venom was in their bloodstream. They were dropping here, there, and everywhere, and given enough time, they would all die. Their only hope was God. Their only hope was that God would somehow intervene. Now, you see that word must, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Why must he be lifted up? Because unless Jesus is lifted up, there's no hope for you or for me. Let me give you three reasons why he must be lifted up. Reason number one is your good deeds can never remove the stain of sin. Your sinful acts, Isaiah says, have alienated you from your God. Your sins have caused him to reject you, and he does not listen to your prayers. Your sin makes you unpresentable before God who is absolutely holy. See, most people think if I do more good than I do bad, that somehow I can get rid of the bad I've done, that God will accept me on that basis. But that's not how the new birth takes place. And you must be born again to enter God's kingdom. If you somehow from this day forward could live a holy life and never sin again, it wouldn't change what you've done back here. And Scripture says, for whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles one point has become guilty of all. That is to say, if you kept every single commandment of God, you broke just one. It's like you broke them all. So reason number one is your good deeds can never remove the stain of sin. Reason number two, your good deeds can never satisfy the penalty of sin. For the wages of sin is death. The soul who sins must die. 
If you commit some heinous crime and the judge says your crime is worthy of death, you could come up with 10,000 alternatives to the electric chair or to some injection or however they pull it off in the given state or country you're in, but it won't satisfy the law if your crime truly, genuinely deserves death. And so God made a statement right at the beginning of time when Abel came on the basis of blood and Cain came on the basis of his own hard work. And God received one offering because he came in faith. Faith is based on revealed truth. And God had revealed already to his parents when they came with their fig leaf religion that their fig leaf religion could never cover their sin and their shame. And so the first death in the universe takes place where God kills animals, plural. He gives them coats of skins. And he covers them to teach a lesson that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. So all the way through the Old Testament, there are rivers of blood, that the life is in the blood, and so without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. I'm not ashamed of the blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is the basis of my salvation, and it will become the basis of yours if you're going to be saved. But reason number three, one given right here, why he must be lifted up, is because God wants to use this as a display that he loves you. Listen, God loves you. He loves you so much that he gave his only son. But the fact that he gave his son does not automatically mean that you're saved by what he did. What Jesus did is sufficient to save anybody but it's only efficient, it's only good for you by believing, by coming in faith. It was necessary for every snake-bidden Israelite to choose as an act of their will and to look at the raised bronze snake if they were ever going to live. And the implication in Numbers 21 is not everyone looked, and that's why not everyone lived. And I'm sure it was sheer foolishness and craziness to some people that all you need to do is look and I'll immediately be healed. That's what God said. And when you talk about people today needing to look to the one who is raised up on a cross, that that's God's way of solution. They will always peddle their good deeds or something they are trying to do or they haven't done. And it just seems foolishness to them. But look at the comparison. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It's a whosoever will gospel. Occasionally someone says to me, well, I grew up in a church. Just recently had a lady to meet the pastor in Bluffton two months ago, and she said, I'm not sure. I'm one of the elect." She said, I grew up in a church that only the elect will be saved. I said, well, that's a half-truth. It is true that only the elect will be saved, but the elect are the whosoever wills and the non-elect are whosoever wants. Anyone in that camp of two million people could look at the raised snake and they would immediately live. And like these Israelites, we have been bitten with the stain of death And unless we look, we will not live. So the Son of Man be lifted up so that, here's the reason, whoever believes me in him have eternal life. 
How plain could it be? And yet we always try to come up with our own devices, our own ways. By the way, how did you answer the second question? Remember, Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what you said or what you wrote or what you thought and you wrote out there in the margin of your mind is the starting place as to whether or not you're born again. Now, typically, if I were to collect all the answers that people wrote down, people would give one of four responses as listed here. Some would say, I don't know. That's why I came. And that's a good reason to come. But if someone goes through this whole life, I don't know, we'll see in a moment, the reason is because they don't want to know. But if someone says, I don't know how to be born again, then the scripture would say they're still lost. Oh, but I got baptized and I shook a preacher's hand and, and I prayed a prayer, and, but I don't know how to be born again. Well, you went through some religious acts, but it wasn't conversion, at least not based on what the Scripture reveals, and that's all that matters. Some of us may have given an answer of good works. Well, you're born again by, you know, turning over a new leaf in life and trying your hardest to live for the Lord. And we just saw, no, good works cannot remove the stain of sin, nor can good works satisfy the penalty of sin, which is death. Some people will bring God into the equation. They'll say, well, I believe in God. Well, so doesn't everyone. Even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. Everyone knows God, Romans 1 teaches. That's why God devotes one half of one verse to atheism and all the Scripture. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. Now, a man may tell you he's an agnostic and, or he's an atheist, and he's got an ego a mile wide. And I hate it when these Christians say, well, I was an agnostic or I was an atheist. And they weren't. Don't say what God says was not true of you. Now, you might have gone around and said, I was an agnostic or an atheist, but you weren't. Every man knows there is a God. The Bible is crystal clear, no matter what they say. Well, I believe in God. Well, so do the demons. Or we might get more specific. I recite the Apostles' Creed every week. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God, was dead, buried, was raised on the third day. Well, so don't the demons. Or some people will say, well, I really believe that, that he died, was buried, and was raised. And on top of that, I'm trying to do these things. And between what Jesus did and I do, I'll get eternal life. And the Bible would say no. There's a book in the New Testament where it teaches if you add even a single work to the finished work, you are inv invalidating the cross. For if righteousness comes through the law, Paul will say, then Christ died for no reason. He died in vain. His death was meaningless. If you could contribute in some way to the finished work on the cross. No, the Bible is clear, your faith in Christ alone will save. Now, again, even that is misunderstood because people will say, well, I have faith. You know, we were in a jam and we prayed for God's help and God answered our prayer. You see, I have faith. Well, God's not speaking of faith in the sense of trusting him to meet your daily needs or to pay the bills this month or to heal a sick family member. 
Those are things we want to look to God for, but that's not the kind of faith that will save you. God is asking you to believe him for something he's already accomplished, that when Jesus died, was buried, and was raised, that that is sufficient to save you. There's only one answer that would express someone who's born again, and it's the fourth one. And again, I'm saying that on the authority of the Bible and not my own thoughts. It's faith in Christ alone. You see those slogans across this window up here? Sola gratia, that's grace alone. On the far right, sola fide, that's faith alone. Solus Christos, that's Christ alone. Sola scriptura, because the Bible alone has to be our final authority. Sola, soli Deo, gloria to the glory of God alone. See, that's what the Protestant Reformation was about, because Roman Catholicism was the third equation. Faith in Jesus plus the good things you do will give you salvation. That's why in Roman Catholicism, no one can know they're saved. It's called the sin of presumption. I'm not trying to be mean. I was raised Roman Catholic, studied under the Jesuit order, the teaching order of the Roman Catholic Church, appointed personally by the Pope. But there are many Protestants who are in the same camp today. Jesus plus. He didn't do it all. It's a Jesus plus plan. You see, the problem with that is you don't have to own your sin. You can always say, I'm partly good enough by the things I've done. And to folks who thought that way, Jesus said, you'll never enter God's kingdom. It's not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. No, you must put your faith in Christ alone. And when you do, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. God counts him with his righteousness. See, righteousness is not, is not infused to you like in Roman Catholicism. In Roman Catholicism, I was in the hospital recently watching this guy, and he had this you know, little... Uh, pole and all these bags hanging off of it, and he was walking around, and, you know, he was getting the medicine through, the, through that uh, pole, through those bags hanging on the pole. That's a good picture of Roman Catholicism. It's an infused righteousness. You get grace through the sacramental system, and then that grace will help you to do good works, and if you do enough good works, then you won't spend as much time in purgatory because everyone goes to purgatory. Again, a doctrine not found anywhere in Scripture. You've got to decide. You're going to believe what the Bible says or what some church teaches. Listen, there's just as many heretical teachings in Protestant churches today. There are preachers in this town who will perform gay marriages. Now, they can do that, and they can say that God sanctions it, but he doesn't. They're lying to you. It comes in issue. Is this book sola scriptura, Latin for scripture alone? Is that our authority? No, righteousness is not infused. It's credited. It's imputed righteousness. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. And the moment you are counted as righteous, and so in the New Testament, every believer is called a saint, the newest and the oldest, the most consistent and least consistent. Every believer in the New Testament is called a saint. When you're in Christ, you're a new creation, and your life begins to change, and so good works are merely the fruit of salvation. Join us tomorrow for part three as Pastor Carl continues his sermon on understanding the new birth. If you enjoyed today's message, you can order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures 
at 877-787-7478 and requesting program UNB019. Please remember, you can support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling or you can give online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays an important role in providing biblical teaching and spreading the gospel. We hope that you will join us tomorrow as we continue to search the scriptures.